podcast lovers, aficionados, academics and producers. This is New Oral Cultures. Welcome to New Oral Cultures. It's Dario here back in the hot seat again after last week's fantastic episode so superbly chaired by Laurie Beckstead and her discussion with Dan Meisner about podcast branding and anyone who's interested in that area I think really needs to listen to that episode because it really went a long way beyond the narrow idea of branded podcasting in terms of branding for selling Dan and Laurie really went in depth on the idea of creating an identity for your podcast and that identity, how it can connect to specific audiences. So really fascinating take on what Dan does with his company. And also it was interesting to hear him talk about his connection visualization, his sort of podcasting neighborhoods um, idea, which is one of those ideas that you you wish you thought of yourself when it it just seems so it, it's so smart but also so obvious in a way um, that someone should do that. So a really great episode. The other thing I wanted to just touch on before we get into today's interview is that I wanted to point the audience on new oral cultures towards a another podcast which we are going to be collaborating with in the future, and that is the Spoken Web Podcast. So this is a podcast that is led by two past guests on the show, Dr. Hannah McGregor and PhD candidate Stacey Copeland. And the Spoken Web Podcast explores unique archival audio assisted by spoken web affiliates, universities and communities across Canada and beyond. Episodes are snapshots of literary history, contemporary responses to it and the cultures of sound hidden in the audio archive. Hosted by Hannah McGregor, who, if you've listened to our episode with her, is really fantastic um, on all things podcasting, really. She hosts the show, but then each episode is produced with a different member of the Spoken Web Network, bringing in new voices, perspectives, and sounds to the podcast every month. Here's a short trailer for the show. What does literature sound like? Those possibilities of utterance that is more than parochial. What stories will we hear if we listen to the archive? Place the needle in the proper groove and then just let the record speak for itself. This is the Spoken Web Podcast. Stories about how literature sounds. I'm Hannah McGregor, and every month I'll be bringing you stories from across Canada that take us into the archives of our literary history. Mostly I like to sort of go back over the years and trace the different uh, things. I hope you'll join us at spokenweb.ca or wherever you get your podcasts. So you can find links on our show notes and please check out the Spoken Web podcast. Now, before we get into the main interview... I wanted to regale you with um, one of those stories that many of you, I, I think, will recognise out there. It's a, it's one. It's perhaps the podcaster's true nightmare, and that is to record an interview and then to realise after the fact that you've lost the sound or the sound hasn't recorded. Now, this was a really odd one because I couldn't figure out why it was a re- remote recording and we we were using Clean Feed. Now, again, Clean. <laughs> 
We've been using CleanFeed for a while, and I have to say it has been kind of glitchy over the last few weeks. And I always put that down to the internet connection, which is usually the culprit. But after we'd recorded this interview, I realized that my end had recorded fine, but the person the person who was at the other end of the call, her audio hadn't recorded. And I couldn't figure out why this was, because when I was looking at the software as we were going along, the bars were, were ticking up and down. And, you know, I could hear her, obviously I could hear her in my headphones. So I really couldn't figure out what, what the issue was. And you know what it's like when you get one of those moments and you're like, oh no, how embarrassing. This is, I just look totally unprofessional. What a nightmare. And there I am composing the email and just thinking, yeah, she's going to think I'm a total idiot. But as with many people, she was totally gracious about it and agreed to, to re-record the interview at a later date. But it really did make me think about the, the software that we were using. And I've switched over to Zencaster. And this is not a paid plug at all, but it seems that their updates now, because they've got video as well as audio on their, on their latest software system for recording. And it just worked an absolute treat. And it seemed a lot more intuitive the sound was was fantastic but you know it's difficult to tell the difference of the the sound when you're just re- recording there was when when clean feed was working the sound was was just as good but you know the options of mp3 and and wav files but also the video which came through really cleanly as well was really really fantastic so yeah that's my that's my podcast tip of of this week is the move over to is the change over to the the software that that works for you and i think that you know, whenever you're doing podcasting production on a budget, as we are, you need to have you need to have confidence in the reliability of the stuff that you're using. And I think one of the things that we discuss in the in the upcoming interview is this idea of of having a high quality podcast, even when you're on a minuscule or zero budget, as as we are. So, all of these decisions around software and about around the the technical setup of your podcast are really important I think and anything that minimizes those kinds of mistakes is obviously what you want so that's my little shout out to uh, Zencaster so if you're out there and you want to sponsor this podcast then then get in touch um so today's interview I spoke to the freelance podcast producer Ella Watts now Ella she works in many different contexts when it comes to podcast production but also works a lot within the BBC so we talk a lot about that and her connection particularly to the rollout of BBC Sounds but the main subject of the podcast is really audio drama and her love of that and her expertise, her knowledge um, of of audio drama in so many different kinds of contexts. And I think particularly with regards to the ways in which audio drama has been tailored towards specific audiences and and how certain audiences and certain fandoms have gravitated towards this medium because it provides a sense of experience and identity that is not really found that much in the mainstream so so this is a really fascinating conversation with somebody who is you know completely enthusiastic about about one of the key strands of podcasting in terms of understanding its significance in in the 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 wider media ecosystem so this is me with ella watts (laughs) 
I'm delighted to be joined by Ella Watts, who is a radio and podcast producer for the BBC and freelance, and who has a particular expertise in audio fiction, which I'm really looking forward to talking with her about today. So Ella, thanks so much for coming on New Oral Cultures. Thank you very much for having me. I'm quite excited to be here. I'm a little bit of a sort of podcast geek, and I have been, I started listening to New Oral Cultures after the second episode came out. So I've been like long time fan. Um, and I'm really excited to be on the show. Oh, that's great. Always nice to hear, especially when you've got a small audience like we have. You know, I don't mind admitting that, but you know, having somebody who does listen on is always is always great. And obviously you work kind of freelance capacity, but also in, in the BBC. So you have a very clear sense of how the audio industry as, as a whole has reacted, say, to the, the pandemic in the last year. And I, I've asked everybody who's come on how, how they've been dealing with it. And some have talked about work and others have talked about how they felt about it personally. So how have you dealt with the the last year in and out of the audio industry? Huh, interesting. So I think I kind of have three broad strands to my answer on this. First of all, I work for BBC Studios in their audio team, which was formerly their radio comedy team, which was formerly the light entertainment department. And uh, for anyone not familiar with us, we basically make about three quarters of the broadcast radio comedy in Britain. Um, and that means that we make a lot of weekly topical satire panel shows, which sure. uh, going from recording them live in a radio theatre to trying to do whatever we could remotely was a little bit of a jump. And with that history of like the light entertainment, BBC Studios Audio, I think, as a production team is is over half a century old. So whilst there are other newer companies that are maybe more familiar with typically working remotely, for us, it was like this massive kind of change of figuring out how we're going to make it work and also figuring out how to make it work for the talent. Because I think because again, of the legacy of the company, comedians who work with us kind of expect a certain experience they expect to be on a stage in front of a big crowd with a theater and lots right. of feedback and kind of like all of that stuff which suddenly we couldn't do and instead we're going like we're, we're posting the microphones and asking them to figure out zoom and stuff so i guess like and i was kind of lucky in that i mostly dodged that bullet because i uh don't work on the topical shows but a lot of my colleagues really had to work really hard they also had a little bit of the archers problem where because some of those shows are such like um, things like the news quiz and the one show as such kind of establishment shows. They have massive yeah. audiences who like, if there's even a minute drop in quality would be complaining. And so, you know, trying to not just translate it into a show that sounds good remotely, but also a show that sounds as good remotely as one recorded in the live radio theater in a way that audiences couldn't tell. That was one hell of a challenge. But as you say, I do have a background in independent podcasting and a lot of the drama I've done has been recorded remotely. So for me personally, not too big. The biggest problem was trying to make it sound like the radio shows had before. Um, right. Otherwise, though, I, th I think the second one was, I think a lot of people like me who work in entertainment, especially like I'm not a journalist, had big crises of conscience of being like, is comedy doing anything for the world we're not yeah, essential yeah. workers how much are we actually adding to this debate um and i think that that was kind of a big moment and then obviously with things like the george floyd protests and all the stuff of like trump inciting terrorists and you know various kind of problems that america nearly sort of falling into civil yeah. war the apocalypse basically you know, yeah yeah you know <laughs> made me think a lot last year about what i felt like i was doing and really question 
the ethics of what I do and the motivation and the reason that I work with people and the reason that I make certain programs or try to make certain programs. And I think it really focused me a lot more on on, on kind of some broad ideologies and, and, and thoughts about like exactly why I think that comedy or fiction can be important and what stories I think need to be told and who I think need, needs to be telling them. So it was at first existentially horrifying, but then sort of helpful in clarifying exactly what I wanted to be doing. Um, and then finally, just I have the immense privilege of being able to work from home. So since last March, I've spoken to 12 people for more than two minutes in person. Wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which has dri- driven me a little bit insane. But I am very grateful to the fact that I, you know, I have a job and I have a salary and I've been able to work from home in the way that a lot of people haven't. Mm. So, yeah, that, that's mostly just been a bit Twilight Zony. Uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting one that it's because it, it is a privilege to have that opportunity. But then when you say you know you've only spoken to twelve people live, that's also you know that can weigh on you. I think a, a little bit. So it, you know I wouldn't do that down in terms of yeah. On the one hand, it's a privilege, but there, there are there are still you know big pressures I think and and big effects that 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 kind of thing can can have. And I was interested there when you talked about the ways in which. Uh, trying to put on a radio show that expects the same quality. And that's really interesting. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about audiences, particularly later on, and how they will pick up a dip in in quality. But I've been struck, I think, over the period of the pandemic, and I think this is more to do with big podcasting rather than BBC radio. So maybe you can sort of talk about the difference between the two. But just how much like well-known podcast names that have got a huge audience have just been recording through Zoom and really not taking the time to to try and keep their quality as high as they can. And it's something that with Neil and I on The Cinematologist, for example, we record remotely. We always have done. So we've kind of figured that out in a way, I think. Um, but we're always still trying to, to make it better and better. But it struck me just how much that, that people have decided, oh, we're going to record over Skype and we're going to record over 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 Zoom and, and, and we'll just do that you know yeah i think this is symptomatic of um i believe it was adam levine who was quoted in an article recently saying oh, oh yeah no. podcasts are easy i speak into a microphone and the next day it's done um yeah. and did you see my sweary tweet about that <laughs> <laughs> i kind of commented i gave that the comment it deserved good um yeah no but i but i think it is symptomatic of the way that like podcasting as an industry is chronically and systematically undervalued by the media industry it's not seen as skilled labor in the same way that um, social media production is not seen as skilled labor, which is always really funny to me because you see so many companies going, why don't we have a big social media presence? And it's like, because you because you get the intern to do it in their free time and they've got no yeah. training, they don't know what they're doing. And I think in a similar way, you know, podcasting is a skill, it's a skilled industry which requires multiple different kinds of skilled labor. Um, there's also quite a big thing about cost. A lot, I mean, this is just how capitalism do, but a lot of companies want to see podcasting as a magic money tree where they don't put any money in and they get lots of money out. Um, And obviously that's just a fallacy. Like if you think about the fact that some episodes of American Life cost $10,000 to produce an episode, whereas there are companies in the UK which will make a series for £10,000. And then the companies in the UK say, well, why isn't our podcast as big as This American Life? And it's like, because 
there's no quality because you're not paying people for their labor because no one cares because they're overworked and overstretched and they're not going to make a quality product. So I think that this whole thing of like, oh, well, we'll just slap it on Zoom. It doesn't really matter what the audio quality is. It's just symptomatic of that. You know, we want to make it as cheaply as possible for infinite potential profit because this is not a skilled industry. And all yeah. of that is a fallacy. Um, I think for that reason, though, you haven't really seen the same on radio. So like, look, for example, at the fact that The Archers has actually slowed down their release schedule. But it is sure. because the people who work on The Archers understand that radio drama is a skill. Like they understand that it, this is something that requires multiple different parts. And obviously with The Archers, they're also facing that whole precedent quality thing. And, you know, the listeners of The Archers are very close listeners. Um, but you know there 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 are less people in the radio industry who look at radio and think this is an unskilled art form there are a lot of people in the podcast industry who think this is an unskilled art form that i'm going to make lots of money out of because it's basically an advert um and they don't put effort into making it a piece of art in terms of the way that the the kind of discourse of what podcasting is has been overtaken by like basically the kind of american commercial marketized long tail assumptions around around podcasting i think that's one of the issues i think that of, of the, the the sort of move towards platformization and it, it's interesting how the bbc and its kind of history and its background in the one sense you know you have this argument about what the bbc does as a public service broadcaster but then at its very best it's still super high quality in terms of production values but value for money <laughs> And also, it has a it has a, an ethos and a name that isn't about that sense of we're just we're just selling something. So, like say for example, if you if you listen to something like Revisionist History, which I really liked the first couple of seasons, and now it just it just seems like am I listening to an advert or am, am I listening to a podcast? And they've synced that up in a very subtle and ethically interesting. If you wanted to challenge that, a very a very a very interesting thing to 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 analyze. I think. Yeah, I think. What a lot of British people don't realise is that the BBC is a library. I've lived in Australia and Hong Kong, so I've lived in countries where we don't have public funded media. And trust me, you, you've got it better here. Um, mm. And yeah, I think that people don't realise that, you know, the fact that the BBC is theoretically neither controlled by a desire for profit nor by state interest in it. I say theoretically because obviously at any time the kind of ruling party could get rid of the BBC, so the BBC is a little beholden to whoever's the ruling party, but in principle it, it is removed from both state and commerce and I think that that means that it makes shows for the sake of making shows for the British public. So you get shows like NB which was produced by Adley Adlington a couple of years ago which is all about being non-binary. And it's a show presented by two non-binary people, one of whom is going to come out to their dad. Or you get Have You Heard George's Podcast, which is about being black and British and working class and dealing with race issues in the UK. Or you get something like After, which is all about people who've been... Um, who've experienced sexual assault and who are talking about what happened to them, but also how they recovered from it. And like, you just, you know, you can't see, I don't know, HBO making a respectful sort of podcast about recovering from sexual assault. Um, I don't think. And I think that a lot of people don't realize, yeah, the service that the BBC provides. That's not to say the BBC isn't flawed. It is obviously flawed, but also, it's great to complain about it until it's gone. And then when it's gone, you're going to miss it. <laughs> For me, like somebody who had never been a practitioner, in a sense, you know, I was an academic and, and you know, very much within that kind of 
ivory tower bubble, let, uh, let's say, um, if you want to criticize it. But then, you know, my whole journey into becoming a podcaster kind of opened my eyes to the idea of sort of practice and academic practice in terms of using this medium, but also the idea of being a, a, a creator, a practitioner. It was kind of like the first time I'd ever, ever done that. And one of the things that happened was I kind of trying to put something out there completely independent. You realize what you're up against, against the BBC in the UK. There's just, there's the BBC is like 80, 90% of everything. And therefore that's where my criticism comes. Unless you're connected or you're in the club somehow, then you're, then you're nowhere really. But, you know, you reconcile that with the fact that it's a similar but different problem in the United States or somewhere like that. Everybody's got a problem of trying to find space and, and, and audiences. In terms of the, the, the BBC, um, you know, and its sort of consolidation around the rebranding of BBC Sounds, because I know that you, were, you had a, a sort of viewpoint on that and, and a connection to, to that in, in various ways. I just wondered what you, got, you, you kind of thought about that and, and what the BBC's, you know, may, maybe from your own perspective, because you're not here to speak for the BBC, but what, what your sort of view on the, way, the direction that they've gone in over the last 10 years or so with this consolidation of audio production, you know, not just music, not just radio, but now podcasting. Well, I mean, indeed you are correct. My views are my own and I do not represent the BBC in any official capacity. So everything that I'm about to say is not the view of the BBC. It is the view of Ella Watts. Um, <laughs> Have you <had> noticed? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was a consultant, a freelance consultant employed with by the BBC Sounds commissioning team just before they launched the app and then for about a year afterwards. Um, and I was specifically employed to look at the audio fiction industry and inform them on kind of movements there and trends and things that I thought that were interesting. At the time I was, as I say, I was freelancing for BBC Sounds. I was otherwise um, an independent freelancer working in the podcast industry. And at the time, BBC Sounds was kind of exciting. So I guess there's a couple of things to say here. First of all, Every company in the world wants to reach 16 to 25s. And a lot of people think that that's ageism. And whilst there is definitely a strand that is, the other thing is just the reality is that 16 to 25s are the most populous generation on the planet. So if you want to appeal to the majority, you gotta appeal to people under 30. It's not that companies hate people over 30, they'll take your money too. It's just that there's more people under 30. Um, so I think that the first thing with BBC Sounds, the fact that it was originally founded to be a new channel for 16 to 25 year olds, was a really good thing. Um, I, at the time, was, I think, 23. Um, and so I was kind of exactly in their target demographic. And I did feel like uh, other stations on the BBC didn't provide for my age group. And I really wanted more content that was relevant to me and my peers and the people coming up after me. So in that way, it was exciting. The other way it was exciting was that in theory, the BBC operates in a way that employs creative people from around the country to make content for like various different stations. And in theory, those people come from a diverse range of backgrounds. Again, how much this happens in practice, we can debate, uh, but that's the principle. And so with that in mind, I know a lot of independent podcasters, my peers at the time were excited about BBC Sounds because it was an employment opportunity. It was like, oh, we can start pitching podcasts. We can start getting money to make podcasts, which just wasn't really realistic up until that point, especially not for fiction, which is much less commercially viable than kind of talking heads. 
And in some ways that came through. So there was Murmurs, which BBC Sounds commissioned, which I was a consultant on. And the whole point of Murmurs was that it was an anthology fiction podcast. And the idea of having an anthology was so that we could employ writers who hadn't been employed before to write for the BBC, people who had written independent podcasts who we thought deserved a bigger platform. However, Murmurs ended up kind of not getting a lot of support. But yeah, so I think in some ways that kind of promise of BBC Sounds providing employment opportunities to independent podcasters fell through. That said, especially over recent years, um, with the new controller coming in, he kind of one of the first things that he did was publish a commissioning brief saying we want the next Joe Rogan show. And since then, BBC Sounds has more and more aggressively been going after like celebrity led podcasts only. I worked on, I helped consulted uh, with commissioning brief that BBC Sounds released for a fiction podcast called The Hope Punk Blockbuster, which was uh, specifically an initiative to employ people from a diverse range of backgrounds to write a story with a diverse range of characters that was like hopeful and uh, sort of countercultural um, and exciting. And that turned into the podcast called The Cypher. And whilst I think The Cypher does have strengths, and you know, the protagonist is a woman of colour, the deuteragonist is a man of colour. It was written by a white man in his late 20s from London who's middle class and straight. So like, in terms of a brief that was specifically to cast diverse talent writing diverse stories, a white man writing from the point of view of a refugee is not exactly what I would characterise as that. So I think in some ways the sound's promise kind of fell through a bit. That said, on the other hand, you obviously have to look at it from the perspective of the BBC. They're still trying to sort of drag in enough young people onto the Sounds app uh, to make sure that they continue to be relevant. They obviously have their problem, which is that their audience is literally dying off because kind of older people are dying and young people are not coming on board. Um, and they do need that to keep existing. And for all of its many, many sins, I want the BBC to keep existing. So I want BBC Sounds to succeed because I think that the service that it can provide with shows like NB, with shows about queer identity or people of colour or like class issues, which aren't motivated by a desire for commercial profit, um, are really important. Um, and stuff like Jacob Hawley's on drugs, talking about whether or not we need to legalise drugs. Like, I think that those conversations are important and I can't see where else they can fit in the commercial market in Britain right now. Um, so if it takes, you know, exclusively employing celebrities for a couple of years uh, for BBC Sounds to succeed, fine. But what I want to see is BBC Sounds coming back to that idea of like employing new talent, employing exciting new talent, bringing up new creatives, providing avenues for creative people in Britain to develop their careers, which is what the BBC has traditionally done in other avenues. It's always kind of on the one on the one sense you know you've got to understand what the, the the context of any media and its development and where it is and and what i mean by that is the where a media is in re, in relationship to the institutions that kind of define it or control it you know whether it's that's directly or not but like say for example with podcasting it does seem that now we're moving more into the era where it's structure is very much mimicking what has happened with other media like say for example film where it's big celebrity driven content that then allows on the coattails tucked away in places some interesting stuff to happen which you know on the on the surface you can kind of say that's you know that's sad and it's maybe it's sad more for podcasting because the way that podcasting developed and it, it was a sort of you know cult 
weird little niche area that that where all the interesting stuff was was happening and now it's kind of not that or it's becoming much more two-tiered and it's going to be much more difficult i mean would you we'll get off the bbc in a second but do, do you think that the avenues then now in the future for a a completely grassroots title to 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 suddenly make a name those avenues are 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 more difficult absolutely and i think that that's kind of the shame right like I am a podcast producer. I work for a TV and audio production company that makes really big TV shows like Doctor Who and Good Omens. So I am surrounded by the media industry all the time. And a thing that can feel a little bit suffocating is just the weight of the media oligarchies that exist. Like they really are. It's just an aristocracy. Like I was talking to a commissioner. um, So I I had two conversations with commissioners in the last six months. One of them told me that they would not employ anyone. They would not pay anyone to make a podcast unless they already had a million social media followers. So basically, if you're rich, you get paid. (laughs) But if you're not rich, you don't get paid. Um, It's influenced the culture, isn't it? Yeah. It's a very similar type of mentality i think that exactly um and then i spoke to another commissioner who said that a person who has i won't name but like who's written a very successful tv show and now presents a very successful podcast who has over two hundred and fifty thousand followers a bit too small for 2021 (laughs) probably won't employ and i think that yeah from from the perspective of being like my generation was the first generation to have the rise in university fees. Uh, so from being from a generation that's in £50,000 of debt, has been through two recessions and a global pandemic, and then getting, and you know, our housing prospects are worse than ever, our debt is higher than ever, etc. and so forth. Um, the fact that media companies are doubling down on, we're only going to employ people who are already rich. We're only going to employ people who are already famous. That, from the perspective of also being a medieval historian, that's that's literally just an aristocracy. That's literally yeah. just, we will only speak to these <laughs> families, you know, and yeah. we will make sure that the poor stay poor. And we will make sure that people without prospects stay without prospects. And we will throttle them and crush them and wipe them out of the market. And that, is yeah disheartening and frustrating um not least because of the sort of absolute suffocation of creativity that results like i don't think that makes better media um i think that if you look at like for example disney like with their latest film it's absolute trash they they've basically they've made a dragon look like elsa like and it's like this is not this is not contributing to art this is not progressing human civilization this is doing nothing for our culture um it's just repeating the same over and over again and i am increasingly finding it just boring and cowardly uh mm. so i don't i don't think it's a good thing uh, i think it's a predictable thing but i don't think it's a good yeah. thing yeah, I haven't seen that film, and I'll be avoiding it. Thanks. <laughs> thanks for the um, no, no, I think that th- these are uh, difficult times, and I think, yeah, my, my, I mean, it sounds grandiose, but my sort of listening politics now is much more, you know, targeted in terms of I want to listen to independent stuff. I don't want to listen to stuff that's been set up by um, a celebrity and is just an interview. It's like I'm not going to listen to Louis Theroux's podcast. I'm sorry. But my, the the ear time I've got is is small enough as it is, and it's going to go to independently produced produced stuff for sure. And it's yeah, I don't want to be sort of pretentious about it, but but I think that it, when you work in that independent sector as I do, and and you want to give those the, the ear time to to shows that that need it really in 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 that sense. And I think that's where the interesting stuff is still for me. 
in talking to you previously and, and today, I'm almost kind of totally envious of your encyclopedic knowledge of actual podcasts and radio shows. It's pretty impressive, really. And I just wanted to go back, you know, were you always into audio? Were you always into radio as a, as a kid? And and that sort of drove you into, into studying it at university? Yeah. So fun fact, I am 27 years old and I have moved house 33 times. I have lived on average in a house for two years. I have lived in both hemispheres on three continents. And yeah, I grew up all across the UK, in the north, in the south. I lived in Australia. I lived in Hong Kong. And the one constant of most of my childhood was BBC Radio 2. Um, whether or not, if I was living in, uh, you know, on the coast of Victoria, BBC Radio 2, Terry Wogan in the mornings. And my mum, she must have like downloaded it or something because it was always in the mornings. Like it never changed time, which I now realise is quite strange. But at the time it was just like, oh, obviously it's BBC Radio 2. It's first thing in the morning. We're having breakfast. It's Terry Wogan. Um, um, and, uh, you know, then later on, it's kind of turned into like Simon Mayo, listened to Ken Bruce a lot. My dad was obsessed um, with Popmaster, which I ended up answering the phones for, uh, for a bit of work experience, which was fun. So, yeah, I would say that, like, for me, that idea of radio as the constant companion um, was like paramount in my childhood. Uh, don't know if you've ever tried being like a baby bisexual girl with ADHD and depression trying to make friends every two years. It's not easy. <laughs> I was not the most popular. I haven't girl tried that, but yeah, I, I believe you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I was, I was quite a lonely kid and I was quite disconnected from my culture a lot of the time. So in Australia, we didn't obviously have the money to go back to the UK. So for three years, I just didn't go back. And I was seven, eight, nine, well, eight, nine, ten. Um, and you know, the only thing that I had connecting me to this idea of home and to my family was BBC Radio 2. And then I lived in boarding school. I went to boarding school from when I was like 14. And again, it was just like the radio was the thing that was kind of kept me company and was like family and was like that kind of soft noise in the background you have when you're at home with family. For yeah, me, yeah. that was the radio. Um, I got to the point between when I finished uni, so when I was like, tw I think 21 and 24, where I moved house every six months. Um, and I just like every night BBC Radio 2 was on, you know, I got it just always I was going to be there for Joe Wiley, always I was going to catch, um, you know, drive time, like, because it, it, it just it just helped that sense of continuity, that sense of home. For me, the radio was my sense of home. And, and, and you know, there are other things as well. Like, uh, I remember moving back from Australia to the UK. And I don't know if you know this, but the Australian music scene, at least when I was living there, was about five to 10 years behind the UK. So I went from sort of Avril Lavigne and sort of guitar-y kind of music and I got on the school bus uh when I was 10 and they put on Galaxy and it was like a drum and bass thing and genuinely for most of the bus journey I was just, I did not know if it was supposed to be music I didn't know what was going on 10 year old me was in the back of the bus like I don't know what's happening <laughs> um so yeah like it's it, it's been this this massive whole uh this, this this massive marker of identity and, and home and and um, identity for me, uh, but then also, Welcome to Night Vale was a huge part of kind of ah. my interest. Yeah, so I mean, Welcome to Night Vale is the classic one that comes up in conversation if you talk to anyone who's interested in fiction podcasting. What sure. I will say in my hipster defense uh, is that before Night Vale, I'd listened to a couple of podcasts which I enjoyed, um, including Our Fair City. 
um and the thrilling adventurer i do i love the thrilling adventurer i have a lot to say about that then about sort of a month i think two months after welcome to nightfall came out i saw some like art of it on tumblr which is another thing that i think is really interesting because it was the art that made me check it out and i listened to every episode of welcome to nightfall for the first two years it was releasing and it's really interesting listening back to it now because they've kind of they've got dynamically ad inserted ads so they've removed a lot of this but in their first year they were like we're gonna have a birthday celebration in a pub uh so if you want to come say hi it's this address and like the next episode the next week was like wow like a hundred people showed up can you believe it little did they know yeah and then a year later i was on an archaeological dig in wales um on the Slim peninsula and i was like i was covered in mud i'd been masticking a roman bank out all day and I was lying on my back on the floor of this like cottage, listening to Welcome to Night Vale as they stepped out on stage at a sold out San Diego Comic-Con. And you just heard this like wall of noise of the crowd. Um, and they got to the end of their um, second season, which is uh, one of my favorite episodes of theirs called Old Oak Doors Part B. And that for me was the, the moment from which there was no return. Um, my whole life kind of radio had been this huge thing, but I hadn't listened to that much fiction. I listened to Cabin Pressure um, before I went to uni because a friend of mine, a Swedish friend of mine recommended it to me. Uh, but otherwise I hadn't really listened to radio comedy or radio fiction or radio drama, I should say. Uh, and yeah, and then that big moment with Night Vale and a couple other podcasts. And then from there, I just like was trying to find everything I could listen to and it just spiraled. And then you were um, you were at Goldsmiths doing radio. Yeah. Um, how was that? Yeah. So so I guess I, I should contextualise by saying so. My dad was in training to be a fast jet pilot and ended up being a professional aerobatics pilot for the national team of Australia. Um, uh, yeah, fun fact. Wow. I can do an aerobatic display in a plane. I can't land one because that's the last thing you learn in your pilot's license. Uh, right, but yeah. I can do an aerobatic <laughs> display. Um, okay. My mum is uh, an assistant professor of the history of art. And somewhere between these two things developed me. Um, and so at university, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And you can tell that because I studied Anglo-Saxon, Norse and Celtic studies. And I tell you what, medieval Welsh literature is not as useful as you might think in today's job market. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the really, really employability avenues for that one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but at the time, I was really into student theatre. Um, I assistant directed a couple of plays. I, I acted in a couple of plays. Um, and then in my second year, I got into student radio. And this just had never occurred to me as a thing that I could be into. And I was given, for some bizarre reason, a Monday drive time show. And I just, I remember standing in the radio studio and I rehearsed my entire show the hour before I was supposed to go out. I just did the whole thing dry. And then I, you know, I switched everything on and suddenly it had all of the excitement of being on the stage, all of, all of performance, but also all of the excitement and interest of controlling a large machine in the way that you can control a plane. And it was like everything I loved about flying and everything I loved about drama in one place, which was making radio. Terror, terror and performance all at the same time. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> big machines with lots of buttons um and i just i completely fell in love with it i i really fell so in love with radio and student radio and i ended up becoming a head of communications for the local community radio station and i had a big saturday breakfast show and i just like i loved it i loved it i loved it and so from that point on i knew i wanted to work in radio but then it took me another six years to actually get a paid job in radio and on the way there um 
through various machinations of fate, I ended up living in Bristol, where I started working for the community radio station there, BCFM. And I started getting some work experience with BBC Radio Bristol. And I talked to a lot of people who, especially at BCFM, wanted to work in radio. And I remember in particular having one conversation with a woman who was sometimes employed to produce Simon Mayer's Drive Time Show on Radio 2, like once a month. And the way that she could do that was that she owned a pub and she ran a pub and then she worked all the time on community radio. And then once a month, she drove to London for the privilege of doing one hour of paid work for the BBC. And I thought, okay, I can't work professionally in radio by going the community radio route. That doesn't work anymore because this woman has been doing it for 20 years and she's got one hour on Simon Mayer and she was good at her job. She's not a bad producer, but it's just, it's not the way in anymore. And so I was like, all right, fine. What is the way in? So I spoke to a few people uh, at the BBC, at the community radio stations. And what I ended up figuring out was that I needed a BJTC accreditation if I if I needed a job. I needed either a driver's license or a BJTC accreditation and I don't have a driver's license. So BJTC was the way to go. And obviously I didn't have that in my undergraduate degree and an undergraduate degree would be £30,000, whereas a master's would be 10000 So I uh, looked at master's degree in the UK that were BJTC accredited and I applied to a few and I ended up choosing Goldsmiths because Goldsmiths is only radio and because I'm just really genuinely not interested in TV. So many people are like, oh, are you using this as a stepping stone to TV? And it's like, no, I actually like radio. <laughs> like, that's what I want to do. But at the time... Just before I got to Goldsmiths, I'd done some work experience on the Jeremy Vine show, which I think a lot of my peers in the industry now find quite weird um, because I really wanted to work in talk radio. I wanted to work in live talk radio because for me, that idea of radio as companion and radio as community has just been paramount to my understanding of the medium. So for me, talk radio is the most like illustrative, powerful example of that is talking directly to people about their lives that are happening right now. Um, so I went to Goldsmiths to do this degree. Um, and then during that degree and during a lot of big, long philosophical conversations with amazing people, um, and my, my incredible classmates, many of whom have gone, do, gone on to do wonderful things, among all these kind of debates about like the nature of radio as an art form and kind of why it is and what it is and, and how it changes and how it has changed, I started to realize actually what I like more than talk radio is, is radio drama and fiction. And I specifically realized this because I was increasingly frustrated that none of my classmates had ever listened to a fiction podcast. They'd mostly listened to a lot of podcasts. They'd never heard of audio fiction. Um, and so over the course of my degree, I ended up, <laughs> I feel so bad for my tutors. I ended up uh, <laughs> volunteering to deliver a presentation on fiction podcasts. Because, <laughs> you know, wow. again, the most likable kid in the schoolyard. Um <laughs> Yeah, you got lots of nods going. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I delivered. So I, I delivered this uh, fifteen-minute PowerPoint, being like, "This is what's happening in fiction podcasting, guys. You should find it interesting." And I did my dissertation on it. And then, interestingly, off the back of that, about two months after I graduated, I was in a pub, and I'd just seen the play Translations by Brian Friel. Uh, which uh, was on at the National Theatre. And if you've not heard of it, it's one of my favourite plays. It's a wonderful play about um, Irish identity and about uh, translating the, how the English translated the place names in Ireland into English. But, you know, transparently was a, was a land grab and a way to tax the law and just generally cause havoc um, and destroy Irish culture. Anyway, 
just been to see that play was in a pub uh, at a UK Audio Network meetup. And the UK Audio Network is the number one biggest central place for all audio professionals in, in the British Isles to find work and exchange advice and, and, and you know, so on. Um, so I was at this meetup. I was sitting next to this man. He's Irish. And I'm like, have you ever heard of the play Translations by Brian Friel? Because it was just, it was electric in my brain. And he was like, oh, no, I haven't. I was like, I need to tell you about this play. Um, and for about an hour and a half, I just talked to him about this play, which I think is wonderful. And at the end of it, he was like, okay, so like, this is the UK Audio Network meetup. Do you know anything about podcasts? And I was like, well, let me tell you about audio fiction. Um, <laughs> and it turned out that this person was Jason Phipps. And once I'd kind of monologued for long enough, he, he looked at me and he said, um, so you did this this presentation at uni? And I said, yes, I did. At this point, I was still proud of it. The shame had not yet sunk in about <laughs> the self-awareness hadn't registered. I was like, yes, I did. And he was like, okay, could I um, pay you to do that for us at BBC Sounds? Would you give us that presentation? And I was like, yeah, I'm unemployed. I'll take money. Um, yeah, let, that's that moment where you go, let me think about it. I've thought about it. I'll yeah. do it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I had a couple of meetings with him and two other commissioners on the team, Eli Sessions and Rachel Simpson, who is now the creative lead at Spotify and is an amazing woman. And yeah, and then they sort of brought me in to give this presentation. And I gave a version of that presentation I gave on my master's degree, um, a better researched one and a slightly snazzier, to the commissioners of BBC Sounds, Radio 4, Radio 3, 4 Extra, Radio 2, Radio 1, um wow. yeah the two as weren't laughing now that's for sure <laughs> you know like and i uh before i actually hit my graduation ceremony i was consulting for bbc sounds and i was talking to all of the commissioners for radio drama and radio at the bbc about fiction podcasts um and that's kind of how that happened and it was really fun and exciting and a bit of a whirlwind uh but there you go so you, you've come to the moment now on this podcast because this is the this is the exact podcast that you need to be on to indulge yourself in in the joy and beauty that is audio fiction podcasting. We've been going for uh, forty five minutes already, so I think we need to we need to get to that point now. So how to how how to start this conversation? I'm somebody who doesn't really listen to audio fiction podcasts. I'm going to confess that to you right away. So. What is it about them that I'm missing out on if I don't listen to them? And what is it about them that you think is a really important aspect of both the renaissance of audio storytelling, you know, within a podcasting context, but then also is really important to consider as why podcasting has become the thing that it has over the last 10, 15 years? Oh, big question. Big question. <laughs> uh, okay. So I'm going to start with the easier one and go on to the hard one. <laughs> uh, why should you care about fiction podcasting? What, what are you missing? Um, <clears throat> so the first thing that I always say about fiction podcasting is you don't like fiction podcasts. You, it's not that you don't like fiction podcasts. It's that you don't like the ones you've heard. Um, mm. In the same way that it's not that you don't like television. It's that you don't like Married at First Sight. And that doesn't mean sure. that you're not going to like Luther um, in the mm. way that you've watched Doctor Who. But that doesn't mean that you're not going to like, I don't know, Life on Mars. Um, and so I think, first of all, it's a medium, not a genre. Um, and there are so many different kinds of fiction podcasts. And a lot of the time when I meet people and they say, I never listen to audio fiction. I say, okay, tell me what you like. Tell me a book that you like. Tell me a TV show that you like. Tell me a video game that you like. 
and I will recommend you a fiction podcast. There are ones that are completely grounded in real life. There are ones that are massive science fiction. There are terrifying horrors and romantic fantasies. I really just need what you like in another medium and I'll be able to recommend you a fiction podcast. But more widely, what is valuable or precious or intriguing or engaging about fiction podcasting um, for me comes down to two really big things. First of all, the fourth wall does not exist. Uh, this is kind of my argument number one, and it's it's related to radio, obviously, in the history of radio, right? So we have this idea that radio is the voice of God, in inverted commas, and radio is the voice of God because uh, historically, especially in the 20th century, it's being played in public places. So you're not constantly looking at it and paying attention to where it's coming from. It's a voice coming from nowhere, giving you information. Um, and that means that you, I think, think less critically about it. I mean, in in a quite tragic and horrifying note, radio has most often been used to effectively incite genocide, which is why controls on it are much uh, sharper in terms of legislation um, than they are around TV or print media. Um, because when you're in a supermarket or on a bus, you're not constantly looking at a newspaper or a TV screen and applying all of your own personal judgments to the person or text or presentation in front of you. Instead, you're just accepting this is just a voice that's coming into your head and you're not thinking that critically about it. Um, the other reason that radio is the voice of God is because God made us in his image. I mean, it's a, very, it's a very Christian comparison, but the idea is that people are always surprised when they see the face of their favorite radio presenter, right? Because they're like, what? But he's he's way better looking than that. He can't possibly look like that, you know, because we always imagine the voices we hear on the radio to either be someone just like us or someone that we would really like because there's nothing else to inform us. People think that they can distinguish class or race or whatever from voices, but actually most of the time they can't. They're often wrong. Uh, and so you, the voice on the radio is, yeah, someone like you or someone who you would really like. How does this apply to audio fiction? When you're reading a book, you're constantly holding and physically interacting with the pages. When you're watching TV, you're constantly engaging with a screen which has a frame. When you're in a theatre, you are in front of a stage. But when you're listening to radio, when it's in your earbuds or when it's just behind you in the kitchen, there's not something to constantly remind you that this isn't real. Which means if you're in your kitchen washing up dishes and someone suddenly opens and slams the door, it makes you jump. If you're in a shopping market or a shopping centre and you've got earbuds in and suddenly you hear a gunshot, it makes you jump. Because for one second, you can't tell whether or not that's real. And for me, this is like stepping through the wardrobe in Narnia. You've got one foot in the world of fiction and the effect that that has on the way that you're able to empathise with characters, the way that you're able to relate to them is incredibly powerful. So one of my favorite examples of this, this is a podcast called The Bright Sessions, which is about a woman who gives therapy to people with supernatural abilities, but their supernatural abilities are not agreeing with their various mental illnesses. So you've got a woman who has anxiety, but every time she has a panic attack, she time travels. Um, or you've got a teenage boy who has empathy and is working through the fact that he might not be as straight as he thinks, but also he can feel everyone's feelings at the same time. And also he's going through puberty and also everyone around him is going through puberty. So there's just a lot going on for him right now. Throughout this series, the therapist, Dr. Bright, is impassive. Really cool, detached. She's a therapist. Um, and then there's a moment towards, I think it's the end of season two, where the only difference in her delivery is that you hear her breathing change. And I mean, for everyone who hates radio drama, not like heavy breathing, but uh, her breathing kind of hitches. And it's like, it's the one thing that tells you that she's not 
as calm as she usually is. But it's incredibly powerful. And I remember talking to uh, one of my teachers at Goldsmiths, um, Richard Shannon, about this. And he said, well, of course, the reason that you feel like that is because the only way that you would hear that is if you were standing right next to her. You don't hear it when you're reading a book. You don't hear it when you're watching TV. You don't hear it when you're watching a play. You would only hear it if you were standing so close to her that you could hear her breathing. And suddenly that hits you. My other favourite example of this is a podcast called Sayer a science fiction series about a sort of post-apocalyptic dystopia where a bunch of the humans who survived are basically slave labor on a space station. Uh, but you know, you're not an astronaut, you don't know how to work on a space station, so you have a microchip in, put into your brain and you're receiving instructions from your microchip through your earbuds, uh, which are telling you what to do, where to walk, what to put on, etc. and so forth. And over the course of the series you learn that Saya is not a nice robot. Um, and there's a moment where Saya kind of reveals to you that some of the scientists on the space station have been working on a device that removes the human desire for violence completely removes it and they've been developing it because they want to put it on the earth to remove human desire for violence to prevent another apocalypse happening again and for some reason Sarah has made you steal this but you've gone through a lot of horrible things to do it you've you've stolen it you've got it in your hand and you're in this kind of lab and you've got it in your hand and you can hear a SWAT team coming down the corridor and say it's like you know they're going to be there in 30 seconds and then Sarah goes okay so you got a big red button in front of you, right? And like, okay, so you could save this, get it back to earth, remove all human violence, prevent any wars, salt, create world peace. But you could press it right now. I mean, this is the only experimental compound. There is no copy because we stole it. But like, you could press it right now and then the SWAT team, they wouldn't kill you. So like, I mean, moral quandary. And you have a moment of uh, complete silence. And that's my favorite thing in, 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 in radio fiction, where you have these moments of silence in which you, the listener, because the whole show is written in second person, the whole show is talking to you. You, the listener, you've got this device in your hand and you're going, would I press it? Because you know, like at every possible like kind of reason for why you might or might not press it comes through and the SWAT team comes through the door and they shout at you to like put the, the, the device down. And all you hear as the listener is the plastic clicking of a button and then nothing happens. And then you hear it again. And then more and more frantically, as you realize, you know, this whole thing has been set up by Saya, but it's such a powerful moment because of that one foot in surreality thing. Um, and the final element of that is, again, to come back to this voice of God. So all of that's about the fourth wall. All of that's about the voice of God coming from everywhere. But the other thing is identity. You don't have a chance to other people in the way that you do visually when you listen to radio fiction. When you read a book, you still get some descriptors. And the other thing about actually to go back into the one foot in surreality thing, when you read a book, you're, you're imagining a world It's the closest you get to audio fiction. But in audio fiction, you've got complete control of the world. Everything is as fantastical as you could imagine. Everything is frightening as you could imagine. The romantic interest is as, as, as attractive as you could imagine for you personally. It's tailored to you specifically, infinitely. It's for you but it exists outside of you. They make sounds outside of you. They breathe outside of you. That fantastical thing makes a sound that you can't define, but you interpret through the prism of your mind, which doesn't happen in books. But the other thing is, yeah, you don't have descriptors. So you don't have time to other people. So when Cecil uh, Palmer in, in, in Welcome to Night Vale reveals that he is an openly gay Jewish man, you've already been listening to him for 25 minutes. You've already decided that you think he's funny or interesting. And then you find this thing out about him. Um, when you listen to Juno Steele in the Penumbra podcast, I mean, that's a complicated sidebar, but, uh, but you know, the character is a black man who's half blind. Um, 
but you you are not introduced to that you think about him as a person i don't think like at any point really they introduce that except in some of the show art um and so you have a lot of time to just relate to him as a person if there's a character in a wheelchair if there's a character who has any kind of physical or visible impairment um you don't notice that first about them what you notice first about them is their emotional state what you notice first about them is that they also like buffy what you notice first about them is that you think they're funny and i think that that does powerful and interesting things for helping people to engage with characters that they wouldn't otherwise relate to um that's my first answer but it was quite long so i'm stopping here (laughs) (laughs) okay um well yeah i mean there's a lot to kind of think about and and pull out of that um I guess, I mean, just to start off with, it's interesting you sort of talk about the the idea of what uh, a listener is doing when they're actually listening and they're not looking at a screen at the same time or they're not reading a book. And I think that it definitely ties into this idea of um, the active process of imagining as an actual positive, um, interesting state of mind or state of being to be in. Whereas we live in a, we we have probably really from the fifties when the TV and you know was in the home for the first time, you know, and, and now you know look at the the amount of screens we've got in our in our environments. The fact that that you know not having a screen is not considered a lack. Whereas you know I think it's a, it's still assumed in most you know implicitly that if you're not looking at a screen, then you're having to do something. It's there's something missing in this sort of media. Um, media engagement that you that you're you're involved with but in a sense sort of writing about film podcasts recently it, it, it and looking at the kind of research and the literature around that that sense of 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 active imagining and what you can do with that and how that allows you in and out of your cognitive headspace into an outside material space at the same time like you're saying you know you, you sometimes you you get the difference between the two the two worlds really, you know, the, the the sound gives you a bridge between them is is really is really fascinating. Um, I think what's interesting what you're what you're talking about there about which is leading into leading into audiences as a as a question. And I know we've talked a little bit about this before, and 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 it relates, I think, a little bit to the ways in which the the, the attempts to sort of replicate a mainstream version of a, an independent niche podcast have often failed because they don't quite understand what it is about fan culture, let's say, that makes a lot of these, you know, Welcome to Night Vale and the sci-fi type podcasts um, interesting in the first place. And that tends to get exercised or, you know, softened when when mainstream organizations try and just replicate that and say, okay, this is going to be super big and super hot. And they don't really understand why Night Vale is so big. Um, so there's that element to it, but also I think that from my perspective, it, it kind of it links a little bit to some of the, the the issues I have in terms of when something that's supposed to be massively inclusive, you know, and 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 have loads of different um, opportunities for different voices and identity in itself then can become exclusive if you're not part of the fan culture and you don't really understand it if you see what I mean so there's a kind of interesting sort of bind I think there go, going on and and yeah I mean I haven't sort of worked through that in my own in my own head because the thing is I, I like audio storytelling I've just listened to the audio book of um, Set My Heart to Five because we've just 
we just um, covered that on the cinematologist. So it's not against audio storytelling in in a sense. So interesting, but I do take your point, and I think that's right that you like everything else. You've got to find the right version of the thing that 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 we're talking about. But maybe you could talk a little bit about that idea of you know the audi- the audience for for audio fiction podcasting. Yeah, definitely. So I think that uh, there's a couple of things at play here. First of all, um, it is my opinion um, and my anecdotal experience that the majority of the people who listen to fiction podcasts are disproportionately queer um, and are disproportionately female. Um, And there are more and more people of colour listening to podcasts, but people of colour and working class people and disabled people are really underrepresented in the field. So it kind of has these facets, right? Like, um, oh, Lord, I think it was Martin Spinelli who wrote a really good article about how we talk about the Internet as this utopia where we solve social issues, but obviously solving them in virtual reality is not solving them in reality. And I think that we often come across that in podcasting and i think it's important just to caveat all of this with that which is that you know the same social inequalities that exist in the real world apply to podcasting which means you know less women less people of color less disabled people are able to access this medium or engage with it in any way and we need to be conscious of that when we talk about these utopias at the same time i think that you know the reason that i would claim that homecoming was a failure uh is that the only way that fiction podcasts can realistically compete with other media is by doing what other media aren't doing. So that's why Homecoming fails, right? Because Homecoming is a story about a woman who falls in love with an Iraq veteran and feels a crisis of conscience. The plot. And it's like, how many movies or TV shows have you seen with that exact premise? How many airport bestsellers have you seen with that exact premise? So no one particularly cared. It wasn't new. It wasn't original. It was the same people we've seen doing the same story we've seen a million times. Whereas Welcome to Night Vale is a searing satire and indictment of alt-right conspiracy theorists written by a Jewish man. And it's like, hey, you know what? I wonder why that was popular just before Trump's election. I wonder Mm. why that continued to be popular after Trump's election. I wonder why a city where the sheriff has secret police and they force people to vote, but also the mayor has never not been a black woman and the main character is played by an openly HIV positive man. I wonder why that appeals. Um, And I think that like a really, really big thing here is that the audience of fiction podcasts are an audience who feel like they are underserved elsewhere. And I think that that kind of ties into this disenfranchisement of perhaps people from other audiences who feel like they're not served by fiction podcasting. And and it's kind of true that you're not, but that's because you're served mm. everywhere else. Um, so, you know, like, for example, um, I know a lot of kind of older white um, straight men and women who are really big fans of radio drama who were like, well, I just don't feel like fiction podcasts appeal to me. And it's like, well, yeah, because most media is made to appeal to older, white, middle-class, straight men and women. Um, And so fiction podcasts, a lot of the time, aren't doing that, um, aren't trying to reach that audience. I think a really interesting and crucial thing to bring in here is Paul Bay is a Korean-American podcaster and now screenwriter who's currently working on a couple of TV shows, but he made a very successful fiction podcast called The Black Tapes. And he said recently in an interview to Nick Kwa on the Seven A Pod podcast that the reason that he got into fiction podcasting was because 
he was sick of being treated like crap basically just because he was asian american because he was korean american he was sick of being dismissed and he wanted to take control of the narrative and that's very similar to what lauren shippen who made the bright sessions and founded atypical artists says like she wanted to take control of the narrative so these people are making podcasts for themselves and their communities um and sometimes that feels like it's not appealing to me so for example there's a, a thriving um scene of black audio drama but a lot of it is very much deliberately made by a black cast and crew with about a black story and it's not for white audiences um and so sometimes white audiences feel alienated and they're like well i just don't feel like it's it's accessible to me and it's like well yeah maybe it's not supposed to be um but this says a lot about audiences generally though doesn't it that now we're not there isn't a well there's never been a homogenous audience but now you know podcasting is one of the maybe the the medium that is actually said okay well we're, we're actually not trying to go for everyone we're literally not so this is for this this type of audience and that's that's totally fine but i think that the I think the assumption is, isn't it, in mainstream media that you can still replicate that mass audience, that mass media, where it really isn't, you know? Yeah, and then I think then on the flip side, you have something like the queer aspect of fiction podcasting I think is really important. And I think what's especially important about the queer aspects of fiction podcasting that a lot of people don't sort of clock, it's, it's, it's sort of similar to the way that misogyny is an endemic in media where people are like, oh, we can't have something with all women because no one will watch it. And it's like literally more than half the planet are women. Like if you want to go for the majority, make it all women. Um, but similarly, um, People are queer regardless of their racial or ethnic background, regardless of their national identity, regardless of their gender identity, regardless of their class background or disability. So one of the few themes that can kind of cross into that massive audience are, are queer themes, because you can be gay and working class and you can be gay and in a wheelchair and you can be gay and black and you can be gay and from Sri Lanka. Um, but it's difficult to find something else that ties all of those people together in that way. Um, and in such a powerful, emotional and personal way. And I think that's the reason that you get such massive sensations as like the Magnus Archives. The Magnus Archives is a horror podcast. It's the most successful fiction podcast that's come out of the UK. Um, it gets, uh, or at least in its heyday, it was getting 250,000 downloads an episode, a million downloads a month. And bearing in mind, this is a, a fiction podcast company that had no money. Like they recorded the first season, no money at all. They're getting more than a million downloads a month. And that's because the main character of the Magnus Archives is bi-romantic and asexual, which means that he is interested in people of all genders romantically, but he is asexual. And by far and away, the most common reason that I've seen people say they listen to the Magnus Archives, and it's a wonderfully written horror show, it's a really good story, but absolutely the most common reason that people listen to the Magnus Archives is I've never seen an asexual character in any other media ever. Mm. That's the reason. Um, and I think that that's interesting. Um, and I think this thing about like how we make things that appeal to more people, like under 25s, I think something like over 70% of them now identify as some flavour of queer. Um, and you look at stuff like It's a Sin, but you also look at stuff like Shit's Creek, and you look at Sex Education, and you look at Dairy Girls, and all of these things are, are quite different. Um, they are all like largely have comedic elements in it, so that's another big thing. They all also have queer characters. Um, and you're like, okay, well, why is this working so well? And it's like, maybe it's just because people want to see more of themselves. Maybe it's because people are thinking about these things a lot more than they ever have in history. Um, and they want to see that reflected to them in their media. Um, and, I, and I think that that's, that's often 
missed. Um, and I think that, that that element of fan culture is often, I sort of jokingly refer to, actually in that presentation I mentioned, I would jokingly refer to the freaks and geeks of the world. And I say this as a queer, um, you know, nerdy person who goes to Comic-Con. Um, but sort of geek culture, marginalized culture, hipster culture, uh, independent culture has often coexisted with marginalized communities. You know, um, trans people, queer people feel like they are able to experience different gender identities and stuff by cosplaying as a character of a different gender. That's definitely not the same, guys. Um, you also get like various people of color who really find a way to relate to characters and, and like their power fantasies and like also like ways to resolve like trauma and things in a way that isn't as directly sort of um, aggressive and violent as a lot of mainstream media is that that really taps mm. into generational trauma and uses that as a stick to beat them with instead of you know um, I think I've seen this month a lot of um, people of color in America and especially black people talking about how what they want is stories that are happy they don't want another story about slavery they don't want another story about Martin Luther King because why is all black media about slavery it's just more mm. violence to use against black people but whereas yeah. you know if a black person really likes Naruto and can just pretend to be a ninja and like it's completely removed from from all of this in 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 their head in their experience then it, it kind of provides the safe place so for a long time marginalized communities and indie hipster geeky communities have kind of coexisted um and yeah when you blow that up uh you get a problem so you get this kind of sanitization and in inverted commas process um which happens with for example the company q code um where they remove all the queer characters they swap female protagonists for men they steal the plots of existing indie fiction shows and then they slap a celebrity on it sell it to a tv or film production company and i would be really really surprised if any of those shows ever make any mark on our cultural consciousness because they're just doing what everyone else is doing but less well because they weren't good enough to make it in tv or film so they figured they'd pirate some podcasts and do it there but like the thing is that that's that's not even making a good podcast so I i'm just going to say i think that the other element is that the possibilities of making something again that we've talked about in terms of that it that reaches a certain level of quality and again you know i know that that's subjective something being good but the idea that what what has happened in, within podcasting is that all of those elements that you've talked about that are now visible and people want to engage with them, you know, either because they, you know, they, they relate to their own lives or it's something different. But also within podcasting, you can do that on a relatively low budget, but to a relatively high standard. And the the access point is there to do it, which it isn't with television and film so so much yeah no i think i think so and i and i think sorry because it just it, it did also remind me so i was lead, reading um last year uh, leslie mcmurtry's book uh, revolution in the echo chamber which is a great book about radio drama and, and and also a little bit about fiction podcasting um and, and and there was a quote that really struck me where she was writing about the kind of death of radio drama in america and the way that tv executives somewhat naively saw an opportunity to realize their artistic ambition in the new medium of tv in a way that they felt had been frustrated by the over commercialization of radio and i thought that that was so interesting because it's the exact inverse of what's happening now right people are coming mm. to podcasting to realize their artistic ambition because they feel like it's been frustrated by the over commercialization of television because the over commercialization of radio in america meant that advertisers were demanding you couldn't reference sex you couldn't have guns you couldn't have death you couldn't have swearing you couldn't have except and, and it got to the point where every soap opera on american radio was the exact same plot because the writers were so throttled by commercial interest that they just they couldn't write a drama anymore 
Um, and so, you know, it goes over to TV. Um, and obviously there's lots of other factors, but that is one of them. And I find it interesting. And so now I feel like you've got it the other way around, right? Like with TV shows, you've got, um, and the reason that I think that something like Netflix does so well is because they started employing people who weren't employed everywhere else a thousand times already. Um, and they started employing new screenwriters and new actors and production companies. Um, because that what was happening on the kind of broadcast networks was that everything was so controlled by what adverts were put on it and what would sell to that theoretical audience that it had become homogenized and we were seeing the same program again and again and again um and so you go to you go to other mediums you go to stuff like podcasting like again a kind of somewhat flippant slightly disrespectful joke that i make about bbc radio 4 drama is the thing is that radio 4 drama is on a schedule and it's so neatly plotted and controlled and timed yeah, that yeah, I can yeah, decide yeah. when I go to the bathroom because I know nothing important is going to happen in the plot at you know <laughs> this point and I know yeah. that I need to pay attention at these minutes whereas with a podcast um partly because of the amateurism in the media uh, it partly because of the amateurism in the industry um you never know when the big plot thing is going to happen could happen in the first 30 seconds could happen seven minutes in could happen 45 minutes in um and so you it demands a higher level of engagement and like you said that active imagination and that sort of creative collaboration there's there's almost a process of making in listening to podcasts and i think that that's part of why so many fiction podcast listeners become producers is because they spend their whole time listening to shows imagining their worlds and then they're like well I, i'm already basically doing it i could just do mm -hmm. the whole thing um yeah yeah, yeah. Great. Ella, thanks so much for, for taking so much time. I really appreciate it. And I feel like already I'm kind of, you know, daunted by the show notes here, trying to remember, you know, go through and write down all the names of these these podcasts that you've you've mentioned. But maybe you could just finally give us maybe one or two more that audio fiction podcasts that people should be listening to. Whew. Absolutely. Okay. Gosh. So I've got I've got two that I really love that came out in the last year. And for me, they were Oh no! Can I can I do three? It's just three. Go for it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. you know, there's no rules on podcasting. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, three. Uh, three shows in the last year that came out that I just really blew my mind. Um, number one, in Strange Woods, took three years to make. Uh, is from Atypical Artists, the production company founded by Lauren Shippen. Um, is made by Jeff Lupino Esposito, Brett Ryback, and Matt Sav. Um, and this is a fictional true crime documentary series about a boy who lives um, in a town um, near a massive forest in the US. And basically on his prom night, he gets really drunk, he goes out, he dies of exposure. And his sister becomes determined to learn how to like backward survival because she thinks that if he had just known then like he wouldn't have died and so she and a bunch of other kids get the kind of local sort of outcast loner who lives in the woods and sort of lives off grid to teach them woodland survival and they and they say at the end of the summer they're going to do what they call um oh gosh i've forgotten the name but they're going to do a big test where they're going to deliberately get themselves lost and try and find their way home to prove that they could survive what what her brother couldn't the twist to this is it's also a fully orchestrated musical. Uh, it is my favorite thing in the world. It's ridiculous. It's poignant. It's it's a story about community and family and grief and loss and healing and identity. Um, it stars Patrick Page from Hades Town. It stars one of the main characters from The Prom, that movie that just came out. It's got a lot of really big Broadway stars in it. Um, and for me, it's fascinating because it takes the fact that 
NPR and East Coast style podcasting. And if you like that kind of documentary storytelling, it takes all of those narrative cues, which they took from radio drama and put them back into radio drama in the way that a lot of podcasts have done by trying to simulate NPR and make it sound real. Only they're not trying to simulate NPR and make it sound real because they're also a musical, which is the furthest extent that you can push your suspension of disbelief. Um, and I, it's, it's, it's genuinely sensational. When I listened to the first episode, the hairs on the backs of my arms stood on end. I have listened to over wow. 350 audio dramas. I do not say that lightly. It's stunning. It's only five episodes long. Listen to In right. Strange Woods. Sounds meta on meta on meta, that. It's just, <laughs> it's so good. It also includes such fantastic lines as he had his phone in his hand as if God was on hold. That is the mark of a man who cannot be saved, which is just, it's poetry. It's just, it's just wonderful. Um, but then uh, second show that I recommend is called Midst, as in in the midst of something, M-I-D-S-T. Um, this is a surreal sci-fi fantasy uh, in the vein of sort of Jack Vance's Tales of the Dying Earth or The King in Yellow. Um, it is about a sort of post-apocalyptic sort of frontier town which exists in a very weird reality and the various characters in it. Uh, now, there's a couple of things that I love about Midst. Uh, one of them is that in Midst, there is a Christian church parallel, which has literally economized your... Uh, economize guilt, economize virtue. So you are constantly in debt to your own sins and you have to try and work it off with virtue. But here's the kicker, the exchange rate changes every day. Um, and it is the most brilliant, searing satire of kind of the way that the Western world, especially America and Britain, exist as pseudo-Christian countries, which do kind of, you know, economize valor um, and economize guilt and, and, and put weight on the individual. And I think if you're interested just from a media perspective and a storytelling perspective and a social perspective, it's very, very good. Um, so listen to Midst. And then finally, and this was just my favorite because it's just a fun time. Um, imagine if Jurassic Park was set 40,000 leagues under the sea. Uh, this is Primordial Deep. It's written by Jordan Cobb. It is about a bunch of researchers who go into a deep sea, re deep sea research station to start investigating weird prehistoric marine mammals that are coming out of a strange part of the ocean that they know nothing about. And they're there to study them. They're there to learn about them. But of course, predictably, things go wrong. Um, and the reason I'm recommending this is that a Jordan Cobb's writing is just unparalleled. She is such a gift and I really just recommend everything she does. But also uh, the sound design in Primordial Deep is absurdly cinematic and good. Uh, in the second episode, there's a sequence where two of the characters have to swim into their um, water filtration system underneath this massive marine station because a scorpion the size of a horse has gotten trapped inside their water tank. And you hear them like scuba diving through, you've got the radio coming on, you've got the water all around them, you've got a chase with a giant scorpion you've got the vaults opening it's just such an exciting and immersive and interesting uh piece of audio storytelling and i think it's so much fun and it really kind of demonstrates what audio can do which i think people often underestimate so primordial deep um yeah also wonderful well thanks so much for taking so much time and uh you know giving us so much insight there and all these all these names of podcasts and things to go and listen to you could uh keep everyone on in the audience entertained for an awful long time with all of that thanks so much ellen thank you